Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel. We're going to look at a few places there, but let's begin with verses 8 through 20 of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let me begin reading at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went... Away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, this morning I want us to zero in on a particular verse. And that's one of the verses I just read. It's zeroing in on the thoughts and meditations of Mary in this incredible moment found in verse 19. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Uh, Reading this verse and even reading these verses in a cursory way, because we're so familiar with this story, sometimes can create the real temptation to miss the incredible impact of the circumstances that were going on. They were very, very uh, wild, to say the least. It's so familiar as we skim over, we can forget how dynamic the circumstances were. The setting of all who were involved, especially the circumstances surrounding a new teenage mother... This was powerful in terms of the announcements of the angels declaring that the Messiah was born. And yet to read it just in its context, it just says Jesus was born. I mean, what what happened? I mean, Jesus showed up. Now, I don't know how many moms are here, but they know that there's a whole lot more going on when a baby is born than just an announcement and there's a baby. There's nine months behind that announcement, right? There's 12 or more hours 
of labor. And there's a reason that that word labor is used for labor because it's uh, something I've never experienced, never will experience, never want to experience. But women have experienced, and I hear it's not um, fun, to say the least. A lot of screaming going on there. Kent Hughes captures uh, this dynamic with something he wrote under the title, When God Was Made Vulnerable. He says, quote, If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasps God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. This was a dramatic birth, no doubt. There's no reason for us to believe that this was anything less than a typical normal human birth, except outside of a jammed inn, in a cave-like stall. We don't know if animals were there or not, but this was purposefully public and out loud and outside. As one person put it, had this happened privately in Mary's mother's home, 20 years later, the event would have been soon lost and forgotten and even denied. No, God made this public outside with a mom who's screaming until a baby is screaming. It's physical drama. And within the physical drama, you have a real shift of scene into from what's going on outside and what's going on within the physical birth of Christ, even the angelic host and the evangelizing shepherds to follow. Things suddenly zero into the quietness and musings of the heart of a new mother in verse 19. But Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, she's pondering on a natural level and on a spiritual level, these ponderings. On a natural level, she's experiencing what every mom experiences, which I call the medical condition, mommy amnesia. Mommy amnesia. As a new mom looks into the eyes of this newborn baby and they're in locked, loving attention, this Mommy forgets everything that's happened to her in nerve pain and size development and things that happen over nine months. All of those uncomfortable nights just wash away. Suddenly, the last 12 hours, the memory banks are wiped because this mother is in love with this new child. This is why, for instance, we have six of them. And two new dogs. And I don't know how that fits in, but suddenly we have new puppies. We forget. We forget. Love forgets. Moms forget. They become selfless and they become servants of life. And yet Mary is bonding with her new son, not just in the physical and natural maternal sense, but she is bonding with her new son as a believer. She's already a believer. 
We're going to establish that. But she is a believer who believes in this son. Not just in terms of a son whom she will raise. Not just in terms of this son being the Messiah for whom she is responsible. Has been responsible to carry now to bring up. But she is finding a new bond and a new connection to her Savior, who is the Savior of the world, the Savior of her sins, and to be the Lord of her life. She's moving from the maternal to the eternal in these few moments. Verse 19 is establishing. It's the standard of All who expect eternal life, you have to receive Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. It's not enough to be moved by the emotion of the story of the nativity. It's not enough to be moved by even the story of Christ who came for us. It's not enough to be moved by the emotion of Christmas. You must be moved in your heart by faith to receive Jesus as Savior and as Lord, Lord of your life. It's never enough for Mary to simply love Jesus as a mother. She models for us faith because she is a believer. And she has earnest faith and sincere faith, faith that is strong and a good example for us. And I want us to look through the eyes of this godly, young girl and see the Savior through her eyes of saving faith. And I want to ask you this morning for you to examine your heart and for you to ask yourself the question. It's not a bad question to ask regularly. Do you possess saving faith? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ on this level? Well, what level are we talking about? Here are the marks of saving faith through the eyes of Mary, through her story. First of all, the first mark of saving faith is that it comes by grace alone. Grace alone. Let's look back a chapter for when Mary was encountered by Gabriel, the angel, and told what was going to happen to her. She was betrothed to Joseph. She was in that That marriage that's before it becomes conjugal, before it is a physical marriage, it is a a marriage between she and Joseph where they were arranged, no doubt, to be together. Whether they were young teenagers or older teenagers, we're not exactly sure, but we know that they're young in terms of what we count young these days in our culture. And they are connected. They are promised to, to each other. Tradition would have them committed to each other, and yet they would not cohabitate. They would not live in the same homes as a way to prove that they were going to be faithful to each other. Look back at Luke 1, 28. Well, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, When you have a young, rural 
girl raised, no doubt, in a poor household. Though she knew the Bible, she was raised in a fisherman's community in Nazareth, rural town. Encountering Gabriel, a high-ranking supernatural being, we need to remember it's pretty normal for her to be greatly afraid, for her to be troubled. And she was greatly troubled, verse 9 says, but the angel before that said, greetings. Oh, favored one. What does that mean, favored one? Does that mean Mary is supernatural or super special? Well, she is super special in terms of the responsibility and opportunity to carry Christ. And it's amazing when you put Mary, a lot of times people esteem Mary and Joseph as um, almost like superheroes in the storyline of, of the birth of Christ, but they were just commoners. They were from nowhere. They were nobodies in terms of the world's culture. And yet these are the ones that God chose, and in particular Mary, to carry Jesus. The word favored here, it's kek karatuan, which means full of grace. The word grace, charis, is right in the middle of that Greek word. Highly graced, highly blessed. Why was she highly graced or filled with grace? It's because she was a believer, And I think it's important for us to establish that Mary was born a sinner just like you and me. And she was a believer just like you and I. She was filled with grace just like when we are saved, we are saved by grace. Unmerited favor of God. That which we do not deserve is bestowed upon us and we get to know God. We get to be his child. That's Mary, that's why Gabriel is saying this. You're favored. The Lord is with you. That's the qualifier there in verse 28. How is she favored? She knows God already. She's a believer. She was saved. And we all experience the presence of God in our lives. Uh, Mary is not a dispenser of grace. She was a recipient of grace. She was a beneficiary of grace, not a benefactor of grace. She's not a co-redemptrix or a co-redeemer. She is one who was redeemed. She's easy to be romanticized as larger than life, but should not be. She was, again, part of this legally binding marriage with Joseph, the Kedushin, which was the traditional way they did marriage, ultimately leading up to the seven-day wedding, like the wedding of Cana. Seven days, no wonder they ran out of wine, right? Seven days of, of a festival was what they were looking forward to, called the hoopah. We don't know much about Mary's background from Scripture, pooling the Gospels together. We can build a little bit of a narrative. Her father was named Eli. It's the lineage um, highlighting Mary. So uh, in Luke 3, 23, Eli is her father. She had a sister named Salome. Salome was married to Zebedee, and they together had two children who were called the sons of thunder, James and John, who became apostles. James and John, by the way, are Mary's nephews, if you put everything together. It's kind of interesting that way. So Aunt Mary to James and John. The family trade was being a fisherman of being made up of fishermen. And Elizabeth, as uh, you can learn in the narrative, uh, reading down in Luke 1, uh, was another relative, perhaps Mary's cousin. And she's the mother, Elizabeth was, of John the baptizer or John the Baptist. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about 
Mary and her upbringing. We just know that her early life was probably spent mostly in Nazareth, hardworking family, and she's virtuous and she's godly. Virtuous and a godly woman, not perfect as we're going to see in her story here, but definitely someone who God favored and gave grace to. So it gives us context for verse 29. She is afraid. Well, what did the angel go on to say to her? Look at verse 30. The angel said, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here, stop there. Do you realize how powerful, what kind of incredible handfuls of everything that the angel's throwing into Mary's mind? Kingdoms are going to be raised up. Kings are going to be put down. Things are going to happen on an eternal, cosmic, historic level because Christ is coming. He will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. These are very powerful concepts. You have Mary here who's, say she's 15 or whatever. She goes, look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Let's just, let's just make this real practical, Right? It's like she's a nurse or something. Let's just make it real practical. Hey, how's this going to work out? You're saying that I'm to be with child and this child's coming. Well, can't happen. Can't physically happen. She could also be thinking in terms of protecting Joseph at this point. She doesn't want to be accused as an adulterer or jeopardizing the marriage in any way. But she's just brass tacks. How can this be since I'm a virgin? This can't happen. You're, You're talking about... A cosmic world ruler who's going to change everything. But we haven't figured out practically how this can work out. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So... She's getting input from Gabriel of how this is all going to be worked out. What does Mary do? Remember, she was greatly troubled. She was really, really worked up. But ultimately, it leads us to the second mark of a believer. And it's that they are stabilized in God's word. Saving faith is always based on God's word. Mary was a word-filled Christian. A word-filled teenage believer. She loved the word of God. And it's proven here because she visits Elizabeth, her cousin, finding out that she too is with child with a significant one, John the baptizer. And in verse 46, you find what's called um, Mary's Magnificat or Mary's Hymn of Praise. That's what that means. Just look at the word that was in her heart. She was threading together Old Testament um, from 1 Samuel and other places to build this massive theology of God out of her heart. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The reason I read this is just to show you the depth of theology that was in this young lady's heart. This was just what was popping out of her. She was trained in scripture. She wasn't concerned anymore with how she was going to be impregnated. She wasn't concerned anymore for how this was going to work out. At this stage in her life, she was thinking in terms of, I'm pregnant, I've accepted it. I'm going to carry, I am carrying the Messiah, and I'm wrapping all of my concerns up in a high view of God. I'll tell you, there's a lot of times when you find yourself in great distress, and if you are anchored in theology, in truth like this, you can make it through life's most difficult storms. And this would have been difficult for her. Where does she go? Where is she finding this material for her to to be buoyed up? Well, she went to a story in the Old Testament that connects very well with her in this moment. She went to think about her hero of the faith, which is Hannah. In 2 Samuel 2.1, you may turn there, uh, the story is of Hannah, a, a young woman who was married to Elk Hannah, who was also married to um, Peniah. And Elkanah had two wives, one of whom was Hannah, the other was Peniah. This is an ungodly thing to do, but the Lord superintended and used this story nevertheless. Peniah had several children over several years, and Hannah grew in heartache over this because Peniah would mock her regularly if you read the story, always mocking her. Elkanah loved Hannah more and would give her more um, when he would go to the temple and bring good, good things back from there. A double portion would go to Hannah. So Peniah would get jealous of that and mocked her over the years. So ultimately, Hannah was brought to the place where she vowed to dedicate a son. If the Lord would open her womb, if the Lord would allow her to conceive, if the Lord would give her a child, then as soon as that child would be given to Hannah, Hannah would give that child with a Nazarite vow back to the Lord, would dedicate this child once weaned to temple service forever. And that means set apart. That means Hannah would now not raise the child. So she did that. 1 Samuel 2.1 speaks of Hannah praying. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. This is when she's dedicating the child to the service of Eli. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Listen to just a few highlights from this. There's none like, none holy like the Lord. There is none like you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 4, the bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Verse 6, the Lord kills, the Lord brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. It goes on from there. These prayers are not puny prayers. 
These are not wimpy prayers. These are not self-focused, circling the drain prayers. These are, this is Hannah who, who becomes Mary's hero. Where Mary's not short on prayer material. She's looking back to Hannah. Hannah's experience who's dedicating her newly weaned child in that narrative to be what? A priest, to be a prophet, and to be a judge of kings. And Mary who in parallel circumstances going, how can I find some footing and foundation? I'm carrying the Messiah. How can I get my head around this, this responsibility? Because I'm going to raise a person who is a prophet, who is a priest, who is a judge, and who is the king of kings and lord of lords. She found 30,000 foot big God prayer sound bites for her to bring into her heart and to pray in her own right. Over the coming of the Lord. She applied God's word into her life. It's been talked about this season. The great classic hymn that's sung over and over again. Mary did you know? Mary did you know? Well Mary obviously didn't know the specifics of how Jesus miracle ministry was going to play out. She didn't know that. But listen Mary did know a few things. Mary knew that she was carrying the Messiah. She knew the weight of this responsibility. She probably knew Isaiah 61, 1, which Jesus quoted initiating his ministry after he was baptized. Remember what Jesus said? He said he was going to bind the brokenhearted. He was going to give sight to the blind. Mary knew that this was the Messiah. Mary knew that this was the all-powerful Son of God because Mary knew The word. Faith knows the word. You can't be someone who claims to have faith in Jesus and care nothing about his word. His word is what opens your heart. It's what opens your mind. It's what opens your eyes to see Jesus with affection. The word of God is what explains Christ to us. The word of God is the gospel to us. It is the good news. The word of God was what buoyed up Mary through tremendous suffering, through tremendous circumstances, as we shall see. It's what anchored her through this dynamic time in her life. Which brings us to point three, the third mark of saving faith. Saving faith comes by grace alone. She was favored. She was a believer. Secondly, saving faith is based on the word of God, And then thirdly, saving faith will persevere through hard, hard life circumstances. Hard life circumstances. Look back at our earlier narrative, Luke 2, verse 15. It says, when the angels went away from them, those heavenly hosts that were shocking the shepherds, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. Let us see this rhema, this word that has happened. The word that had been spoken by the angels, which said, I bring you good news. Verse 10, great and great joy that will be for all the people. The Savior who is born, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the word that that the shepherds heard and believed, and then the shepherds want to take this word into town. They want to establish that it's taken place, and then they want to become evangelists. Verse 16, they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw it, they made known 
the saying, again, the word. They were telling the people the word that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, there's a nice pivot point between verses 18 and 19 that I do not want you to miss. It's subtle, but it's actually powerful when you lock in on it. Look at verse 18, all who heard, these are the crowds, the townspeople that were listening to these shepherds who were wild-eyed saying, we've heard from God, we've heard from angels, the Savior has come, we've established it, now we're communicating this to you. And then verse 19, but, so you have the crowds are wondering at what was said, they're amazed, they're astonished at what has been said, but in contrast to the crowd's response, look at verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a difference between the way the townspeople responded to the message of God, the new Savior, and the way Mary responded to this word, this word made flesh who's come into her world. That difference is the difference between being superficial And having genuine faith. It's the difference between being someone who sees and is in astonishment over Christ, is wowed by Christ, and someone who is embracing Christ, treasuring Christ, believing in Christ, and listen, listen, keeping safe the message of Christ. That's what verse 19, that's what treasuring means. It means to keep safe, to treasure, to hold as dear the message of Christ. The gospel of Christ is held, locked, treasured in Mary's heart because she's a believer. Listen, the gospel is a narrow road gospel. There are a lot of people who will turn out for Christmas, for the Christmas occasion. There's a lot of people that are turning out at Target and other elaborate stores in our community, giving all kinds of money toward, um, you know, our economy this time of year in the name of Christ. They're astonished by the story of Christ or they're astonished by the sentiment of giving. But there's a lot of people who do not really believe in Jesus Christ, who do not treasure, hold dear, keep, preserve this message of Christ. And that's what Mary did. She was pondering these things. The word pondering is a unique word. It's sumbalo. And it's the idea that you're, you're, it's like you're kicking an idea around, like kicking a ball around in your head. You're, you're cogitating on the message of the gospel. You're thinking it through. You're taking it close to your heart. And in a lot of ways, preaching from this text, because you're so familiar with it, it can be a temptation for you, even as a believer, to check out. But I want you to check in to this gospel message and think about it like Mary was. Ponder it. Battle it or bat it around in your mind. The implications of the message are astounding. Now Mary is in a good light here in chapter 2, but she was not perfect. And Mary's appearances go on throughout scripture, though they are few. But they're powerful pictures of who Mary was. I want to bring out most of them. There's a few more appearances. Not all of them are stellar. Twelve years after the birth of Christ, Jesus goes with Mary and Joseph in a large caravan to celebrate the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. 
And Mary and Joseph, like really good, responsible parents, lose track of Jesus. Hey, where's Jesus, you know? I mean, they just got back into the caravan, walking back to um, wherever, and they're going back home and caravanning home and thinking, well, Jesus, he's 12, you know, he's got it together. He's with the group somewhere. And they find out, nope. He's not with us. And so for three days, they're searching for Jesus, high and low. The significance of three days is that they didn't think to find Jesus in the temple, the very place he was supposed to be. Jesus as Messiah was not only submissive to them as parents in the natural sense, but he was submissive ultimately to his heavenly father. And at 12, as this young adult was maturing into his mission, this is the beginning of his mission where he is saying, the submission to my father supersedes the submission to my parents. And so I'm submitting to my father's will, being in the temple, learning the word of God, which was very important for him, even as Early in his ministry, right at the beginning, he was going to resist Satan himself by quoting the word of God. So he's wowing his professors. He's wowing his teachers in the temple. And his parents are in histrionics looking for Jesus. The text in Luke 2, 48 says that they were astonished when they found Jesus. They scolded Jesus. Son, why have you treated us so? They were in great distress. And Jesus is saying... Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now listen, I have a little bit of compassion for Mary and Joseph. I've been known to uh, have some spaz moments in my life as a parent looking for lost children. Um, one, time, one time Randy was coming over. I forget what for you were helping us with something around the house. And um, Randy Carlberg and I was just at the end of, um, I, no, actually I had not found Owen yet. And he, he's our youngest. He's, he's the child, you know, the boy king in our family. And so um, Owen was nowhere to be found. He's probably one and a half years old, maybe one. Um, couldn't find him. I mean, I'm, you know, kicking doors in, looking around, uh, not, you know, running around the neighborhood. Didn't know where he was. He was asleep behind the couch. Just Wow. Thank you, Owen. I still am working through forgiving him for that. You know, one time, um, the Sons of Thunder in my household, Carson and Brady and, and Owen, um, this is after church, probably the first, again, first year and a half of being here. I'm coming back tired from church and preaching. And we just put the kids in the backyard with the gates that were locked. We didn't realize that the older ones had progressed along enough to be able to, you know, flip the lock or whatever and get out. And so the gates are open. And so all three children are out in the neighborhood. Don't know where they are. Um, you know, I, I see a stray diaper laying, laying on, you know, there's, there's proof of life somewhere. And, uh, and I made it out to Lake Otis and saw two giant jacked up trucks that were stopped cornering Owen, who was toddling out as like, again, a nine tenth month, month old or something like that. And, and you have, you have dads or, or concerned people who are walking, you know, to, to Owen to, to rescue him. And, and help him. So I get histrionics. I get what they were, were going through. But Jesus was saying, you should have known where I, where I was going to be. They did not understand, verse 50 of Luke 2, the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So he was also still submissive to his parents. And his mother, listen, treasured up all these things in her Heart and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God. And man, 
Mary's posture of treasuring shows up again. She's, she's holding dear the truths and reality of who, who Jesus is. Moving from just astonishment and parental distress to worship and to truth and understanding who Christ is. That's the point. The parents were normal, but Scripture's point is that Jesus was not normal. Jesus was the Messiah. 18 years after this, you have Mary and Jesus' half-brothers. So his half-brothers are finding out about Jesus, who's returned its ministry to their home area, where they're in contact or at least close proximity to Jesus. And the ministry of Jesus at this point with his 12 apostles was fever pitch. He was healing. They were um, preaching all the time. Raising the dead, doing all kinds of ministry, teaching, preaching, to the point where it says in Mark's account, and it's only one account in Mark's gospel, Mark 3.20, the crowd had gathered again, so much so that they, this is Jesus and the 12 apostles, could not even eat. They didn't eat. And so his family heard it. This is Mary and the half-brothers. Probably Joseph had died. And they went out to seize him. They're going to take Jesus off the mission field because Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He's killing himself in the work. It's not a good thing. They said, he is out of his mind. This is Mary. She's not perfect. She didn't always understand the mission. The mother... His mother and brothers came. They're standing outside. They sent for him. They were calling for him. And the crowd was sitting around Jesus. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Don't miss the subtle and not-so-subtle rebuke on mom. The one who does the will of God, that's my mom, and those are my brothers. Jesus is laying it out straight. She's, he's calling it out. Mom, you're not understanding the mission. It's not enough to follow Jesus as a mother. To be saved, saving faith means that you follow Jesus as Lord, now not perfectly, Mary is a believer, Mary's not doing this perfectly, but the point is, believers follow Jesus, denying themselves, taking up their cross, following Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Accept the Lord Jesus into your heart. Confess Jesus as Lord. The Lordship of Christ is what Jesus is emphasizing here, not mom needing special treatment. Or the brothers getting special access. This is about Jesus' mission, ministry, and message. Now here's the extreme last test of Mary that we see. Or at least that I'm going to unpack here. Two years later, Mary is facing the most extreme test of her faith. And she's having to watch her own son be falsely accused, mocked, stripped, shamed, beaten, and crucified on a cross, crushed to death. Simeon, the one who was a just and devout man waiting in the temple, waiting what's called the nuke dimittis, or dimittis, uh, now I can die 
moment where Simeon's whole life was centered on seeing Christ be born. And when Jesus was presented in the temple upon being born, Simeon worshipped because he saw that the Messiah had come. But in his worship, he said these words to Mary in Luke 2.35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul. Mary's soul, 30-some years later, was being pierced through as she is watching the murder and crucifixion of her own son. Her mother was pierced with pain over her son, and her son, who's hanging on the cross, is looking back at his mother as a physical son, loving his mom. His mom heart is breaking And the son's heart is breaking with compassion for his mother. John 19, 26 is where this scene is um, told to us. And Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Now this is John who's standing next to Mary. John who's Mary's nephew. He's standing with his aunt, Mary, watching Jesus suffer and die. John, whom he loved, standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, why didn't Mary have a nervous breakdown? Why didn't she leave the faith? Why didn't she say at that point, now we know Jesus rose again, but again, she didn't have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, she could have just left and said, I've had it. I'm sure people did. Why didn't she? It's because she had true saving faith. She had real faith. Real faith perseveres. She saw Jesus again, and we come to a scene in Acts chapter 1. Forty days later, Jesus had been teaching on the kingdom to his disciples, and so Mary's been around this. This is a nod towards Mary In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, she up in the upper room with the 120, Acts 1, 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman, with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there are women there, but there's in particular Mary, the mother of Jesus, And his brothers. You have brothers being saved. You have mom who's persevered. Who's made it through immense suffering. Through immense trials. Why? Because she was saved by grace alone. Two. Because she knew the word of God. She was steeped in theology. She was steeped with depth in scripture. And she had a faith that persevered. This final portrait painted of her in scripture is one where she had grown from a teenage girl who was trusting God, trusting the word that she heard, willing to take on the responsibility, who went through a lot of things and ultimately is seen as a mature worshiper and disciple of Christ. Persevering through harsh life circumstances, it It is something that is promised for you. You need to have saving faith that's by grace alone. 
You need to know truth and you need to persevere. You need to brace for it. And the only way to do that is ultimately looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. What made her this way? What made Mary special? Well, she was special because she was given the responsibility, but she really was simply a believer saved by grace alone. It's never enough to be just amazed by grace, to be astounded by Christ's birth. You have to be someone who moves from the emotion of Christmas to a mature disciple. And how do you do it? How do you do it? One thing, and it has to be by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You can't just say the words. You have to open your heart and say, Lord, I am dropping my guard. I'm taking down the walls. I'm not hanging on to religion. I'm not hanging on to heritage. I'm not hanging on to the fact that I was born and raised in a Christian home. I'm letting those things go. I'm letting go my Christian school upbringing. I'm letting go my past. I'm even letting go of some kind of prayer story that I have that um, I look to as what makes me believe I became a Christian where I've lived a life. Perhaps you've, you, you thought that you were saved, but then you lived a life of rebellion that's proved that you really were never saved in the first place. I don't know. But you have to lay all of those things down at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. Come into my life and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm confessing you as Lord. God never sent anyone to hell who was trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. I'm not trusting in self. True faith says I'm trusting in you and I give my Not my moment. I give my life. I give my now and my future going forward. I'm forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward for what's ahead. I'm leaving the world behind me. I'm putting my hand to the plow. I'm not looking back. I'm denying myself. I'm taking up your cross, your cause, the future you have for me. I'm taking it up and I'm following you with my whole life. The Bible says, It's nothing less than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You give him your all. Not in your own effort, but you make yourself available saying, I believe in you with this commitment. Based on your death, your burial, your resurrection, you rose on the third day. I can find forgiveness in your sacrifice alone. Change my life. If any of that is the prayer of your heart, the Spirit will open your heart and open you up and change you and transform you. This is the gospel. This is the grace of the gospel. This is why we celebrate the birth of Christ.